0: Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Thank you for your kind words. Ten years has just flown by. I really can't imagine doing anything else. Riverside is such a special place. This church family means so much to me. And we have been richly blessed. So if you brought your Bible this morning, I hope you did. If you would turn with me to the book of Esther. And we're going to be in chapter 7. And as you probably know, unless you're brand new to Riverside, the title of this series in Esther is On Purpose, and one of the major themes of the book, as Dan mentioned, it's God's providence. And just as we kick this off, we need to be careful not to confuse providence with things that are miraculous. There are no recorded miracles in the book of Esther, only providence, And remember, a miracle is when God overrides or suspends some physical law. Whether that be the law of gravity or entropy or whatever. That would be a bona fide miracle. And one of the things that kind of bothers me is that we use the term miracle way too casually these days. We even have fertilizer called miracle Grow. Or sandwich spread called Miracle Whip. (laughs) Mmm, it's a miracle. I think the only miracle is that we don't die from all the cholesterol (laughs) in it. Those things aren't miracles. Um, You may remember in 2009 when US Air Flight 1549 struck birds right after takeoff out of LaGuardia Airport, and at just 3,000 feet. Above the ground, they lost all thrust in the engines. And Captain Sully Sullenberger piloted that craft to a perfect water landing on the Hudson River. And it was very quickly dubbed the miracle on the Hudson because all 155 people on board survived. There were really no serious injuries. It was, it was pretty amazing. Yet, however improbable that was, it wasn't a miracle. There wasn't some big hand that reached down from heaven and lowered the jet slowly down to the earth. It glided down completely within the operational parameters of the aircraft. I saw it, you saw it on TV. It wasn't a miracle by by its purest definition. Now, there may have been a lot of providence involved, Because Captain Sullenberger was the perfect man for the job. He had loads of experience, and he was even trained, guess what, in flying gliders. Perfect. He was the right man. But that just doesn't make it a miracle. I mean, it's highly improbable that that a jet would lose thrust at 3,000 feet over downtown Manhattan, and everybody survive. But still... Improbable, but not a miracle. Now, if those passengers would have gotten off that wing and walked across the top of the water over to the shore, that would have been a miracle. I call it the miracle on the Hudson. So we use this term too loosely. What we mostly see in our lives and in the book of Esther is providence. So what is providence? Well, it's not something miraculous. But... It is an act of divine intervention. God is involved. And as we've been saying, it's God orchestrating the ordinary things in life to achieve his extraordinary purpose. It's not miraculous. Do you believe that God can and does do that? Not just in the book of Esther, but in your life. Do you believe in God's providence in your life? Do you see it? Do you rest in it? This week I was, I was driving to the office and I was just enjoying a beautiful morning cruising down Bulkham Road and an SUV kind of rolls up to a stop at a side street and rather than waiting for me to go by, the driver just moseyed out in front of me and I had to slow way down and wait while the driver got up to speed, which took a really long time. Now, notice I didn't mention the gender of the driver. I don't want to play into any female stereotypes. (laughs) Wait, I I didn't mean it that way. I think, in general, women are better drivers. They just don't have the same sense of urgency sometimes. Now, at first, in my flesh, I was like frustrated by this, but within just a, like a half a second, my spiritual side kicked in and I said, God, I thank you for resetting my schedule because who knows what might've happened later in the day had I've gotten to church 20 seconds earlier. I just don't know. Now, was God involved in that? I'm I'm not saying he was, I don't know, but I rest in the fact that if changing my schedule by 20 seconds threw out of place something else that was going to happen, God has the ability to step in and set it back again. I can rest in that. See, that's what we're talking about in providence in our life. God is in control. He's providential and he's working out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I love him and I'm called according to his purpose and most of you are too. So what do we have to worry about as we go through life? Nothing. Nothing. We have nothing to worry about. So that's what it means to rest in God's providence. So, by way of just setting the stage for where we are in this book, rather than kind of recapping all of the details, I thought I'd just recap the acts of God's providence that we've seen so far. And I'll just just say this one thing. So, the setting is that the Jews remain in exile in a foreign land. Most of them had not returned to Jerusalem. And there's an evil plot that threatens the very existence of, Of the Jewish people and threatens God's plan of salvation for mankind. So here's some of the providence that we see God uses King Xerxes, the Persian king, he uses his own arrogance and lewdness to remove Queen Vashti from her throne, leaving a vacancy in the palace. And then God placed a Jew named Mordecai in the citadel of Susa, the palace city, and he was employed in the citadel. And he endowed Esther with beauty and poise. And and he made her the adopted daughter of her cousin Mordecai. And out of the hundreds of young virgins, Esther was chosen to be the next queen. God took out one queen and placed Esther, a Jewish young lady, on the throne, the queen's throne, there in the palace at at Susa. And then in uh, chapter two, verse 10, we found that Mordecai had forbidden Esther to reveal her nationality and her family background. Now, why did he do that? It might not seem like such a big deal. Mordecai, everybody else knew that Mordecai was Jewish, but he said, do not reveal your background, your family, your ethnicity. Had it not been for that one small point, much of what unfolds wouldn't have happened the way it did. I believe God was involved in that. The king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women we saw in in chapter 2. Esther won the king's favor and his approval and she was appointed queen. And we saw how God's hand, he guides the heart of the kings anywhere he wants. And so... She received his favor. We saw also that while working in the citadel, Mordecai was in just the right place at just the right time to learn of an an assassination plot against King Xerxes. And Esther was in just the right place to tell Xerxes about it and give the credit to Mordecai. When, um, When Haman cast a lot, To determine the date on which he would execute his plan to exterminate the Jewish people. It fell on the furthest month from the current months. 11 months forward. Giving time for many other other events to unfold. Mordecai was in the right place at the right time. Working in the palace to learn all the details of Haman's evil plot. Which again he communicated to Esther. When Esther approached King Xerxes without being summoned, he was pleased to extend the scepter and spare her life. Esther requested that the king and and Haman attend two banquets. Remember that last time? What we studied last week was the first banquet. Why two banquets? You know, as she was prayerfully seeking the Lord's direction... He moved on her heart to have this second banquet just a day apart. And in between, all of these events that follow happened. So S. Haman left Esther's first banquet in high spirits. Remember that? And he just so happened to see Mordecai at the king's gate. And he was filled with rage. And so he gets home. And his wife helps him devise a plan. She advised him to to erect a 75 foot high pole to have him impaled on and he does. He builds up that structure. That night the king couldn't sleep. He has some of his servants come read him the boring chronicles of his reign. Maybe he was going to put him to sleep. And what did they end up reading? But the account of how Mordecai had spared his life by revealing the assassination plot. King Xerxes asked, how can I honor a man with whom the king is pleased? He asked that of Haman, and Haman thinks he's talking about him. And so he lays out this wonderful plan to pour out the king's honor upon a man, thinking it would be him. And then the king instructs Haman to publicly honor Mordecai. Just as he had described. All of these last events happened between the first banquet and the second banquet. And God was involved in every one of them. There's nothing miraculous in there. But it's God's providence. His supernatural involvement. Orchestrating these events to accomplish his purpose. And so now it's time for the second banquet as we come to chapter 7. And just by retracing God's providence we pretty much summarize the first six chapters because God has been involved in all of these things. So that brings us back to the title of our series, On Purpose. And it just, I want to emphasize again, all, first of all, all these events happen for a purpose. But I want to emphasize again that God's providence does not mean that he causes everything that happens. He certainly doesn't cause sin or cause evil. But He does orchestrate even the unwanted evil acts of mankind to accomplish His purpose. So keep that in mind. And with that, the title of our message this morning is Paying the Price. And we're going to look at Esther chapter 7, all of that, and then the first two verses of chapter 8. And there's three parts to the outline. First, the build-up in verses 1 through 6. Then the blow-up in 7 and 8. And finally, the breakup, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 7 and going through verse 2 of chapter 8. So, as I said, it's time for the second banquet. And it's just one day after the first banquet. And that's where we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 7. It reads, So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. So we want to look first at the build-up that's happening here. Now this banquet, this second banquet, like the first, it was no doubt a really elaborate banquet. It was a pretty elite guest list. There were three people. There was King Xerxes, Queen Esther and this man Haman. Just the three of them and the servants. And it says, like it says with almost all their banquets in this book, they were drinking wine. It seemed to be a favorite of the king. Back in chapter 1, verse 7 said that wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. So here are some of those golden goblets that were part of the the uh, Persian kingdom. These are now on display in a museum in Tehran. Each goblet, look at how it's handcrafted with a different type of animal sculptured into it. Just like the text in chapter one see, says, extraordinary amount of craftsmanship 500 years before Christ. And then here are some golden plates that were also part of the the palace collection. And they feature lions on them. This was a common theme. It represented kingship to the Persian people. And here's a bowl with an inscription on it in three different languages. Persian, Elamite, and Babylonian. And each one of those descriptions mentions Darius, which is King Xerxes' father. This too was part of the Babylonian utensils or, I guess, dinnerware. We, we, we can't know for sure if any of these ones that you've seen were used in this particular banquet, but they were part of their collection. Wouldn't it be cool, though, if Esther used one of those very implements in this banquet of hers? I just find that thought fascinating. So they're holding this elaborate banquet, And as they're settling in after dinner, the king asks again in verse 2, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be provided. Now this was probably like a common phrase at the time. And it's a bit, as I said last time, of royal hyperbole. He wasn't really saying, I'll give you half the kingdom. But it was like today we might say, Well, ask whatever you want. I'll give you anything you want. You know, we kind of say that loosely, a little bit of hyperbole. But the gesture shows the favor that Esther had with the king. And we noted last time, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. It wasn't just Esther's beauty and her personality that brought her into favor with the king. It was also the Lord's hand in that. And so, verse three, then Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request for I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. This statement of Esther's, it says a lot about her. Look at, first of all, her conduct and her character had established a good relationship with Xerxes. And she's now leveraging that. She says, if I have found favor with you, O king. She wouldn't have said that if she wouldn't have had a good relationship and favor. She had been conducting herself in a beautiful way alongside the king. And then it also shows humility and submission. She says, if it pleases your majesty. That's really cool. She didn't threaten the king. She didn't demand anything. You need to do this. and She didn't. She said, if it pleases your majesty. It shows also that she was reasonable and she was respectful. She says, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Well, I don't know. I think think that a whole nation being sold as slaves is a pretty big thing. But she says, if it were that, I wouldn't have even bothered you, showing that this is something significantly greater than even slavery. She just shows a real respect for the king and for his time. Now, I think it's also wise that she doesn't say anything about Haman. She didn't start out. I remember when my kids, like they came to us with a grievance. The first word out of their mouth was always one of their siblings. (laughs) Will David, will Nathan, will Amber, (laughs) you know. It was the first word. Esther doesn't do that. She doesn't say, Haman did this. Or, Haman did that. Instead, she just lays out this situation and makes this humble request and she waited until Xerxes asked who it was. Now, that made it really clear that Esther's petition, it wasn't a vendetta against an individual. It was just anguish over the consequences of what this individual did. But it wasn't a personal vendetta. And so she set it up beautifully. And I would say prayerfully. She had been praying along with all the Jewish people that they knew and even her servants in the, in the palace. She had been praying for days before she approached the king and began this process. So King Xerxes in verse 5, he asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Now she doesn't hold back. She says in verse 6, verse 6, says, Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Vile Haman. That, That seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? But it was true. She wasn't exaggerating here. There was no hyperbole. Haman was a vile, wicked person filled with hatred and rage. And she's simply calling out what he was. He pretended to be a friend to Xerxes. But what he was actually doing was manipulating the king for his own self-interest, making him more of an enemy and an adversary than a friend. And look at Haman's response as soon as Esther says these words. Verse 6 says, Then Haman was terrified Before the king and queen. I'll bet he was. Because he had been outed hadn't he? He. His true nature. Was being exposed. Right there before the king. Listen to what Hebrews 4.13 says. It says. Nothing in all creation. Is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. And laid bare. Before the eyes of him. To whom we must give an account. That's a pretty fascinating verse. It's not talking about having all of your stuff outed right there in front of King Xerxes. It's talking about before the king of kings. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Think about how many arrogant Unrighteous people will be terrified like Xerxes on the day they stand before King Jesus, the King of Kings, and all their deeds are laid bare before him. Think about that. Richard Dawkins is a famed British evolutionary biologist. And listen to what he said. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal. I don't even know what that is. Pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow. Dawkins is 82 years old, and one day not too long from now, he's going to stand before the king of kings, and he's going to be terrified at what he said. Another author, Christopher Hitchens, one of the most influential atheists of the 20th century, he looks angry, doesn't he? I think he looks like Haman probably did at times. (laughs) Filled with anger and rage, Hitchens said this, religion poisons everything. It makes morally normal people say and do disgusting and wicked things and it justifies them, amplifies them, celebrates them and ratifies them. Wow. He died in 2011 and you can bet that he feels differently now. One more, American philosopher, author, and podcaster, Sam Harris. He said, theology is is now little more than a branch of human ignorance. Indeed, it is ignorance with wings. Well, you know what? Sam Harris, one day too, will kneel before the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And he will be terrified at the thought of his own ignorance. Every one of us, though, not just unbelievers, every one of us will stand before the King of Kings. And all that we've done will be laid bare, exposed. But for believers, we don't stand in the same way as an unbeliever. We don't stand before the great white throne in a judgment of condemnation will stand before the bema seat of Christ and the judgment there will be one of rewards for the things that we have done in in this life because the price for all of the evil has been paid by the king himself. So, uh, Haman is terrified and rightfully so. And all of this is the build-up. Let's look secondly at the blow-up. The king, it says in verse 7, the king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Now, this news about Haman had to come as quite a shock to Xerxes, He had no idea. But I don't think Xerxes was a very good judge of character. And and Xerxes was in part responsible for what had happened. Because he's the one that promoted Haman to this place of honor in the palace. And he's the one who entrusted him with the authority to write the edict. He gave him his signet ring. Said, here, write it in my name. Without even asking who these people were. Or how many of them were involved. He trusted Haman. And Xerxes made some pretty big assumptions about Haman. And he may even be fuming at the fact that now Haman has made Xerxes out to be a fool because Haman authori- Xerxes authorized this irreversible edict. Now, Haman, on the other hand, he realized the king had already decided his fate. There was no point in begging Xerxes for mercy. So he stays behind to beg Queen Esther for his life instead. I wonder what kind of excuses he made. What do you think he said to Esther? I had no idea you were Jewish. I I wouldn't have done it if I'd have known that. The edict wasn't meant to apply to everybody. The translators misconstrued what I was saying. Maybe he used that one. Maybe it was my wife, Sarah. She made me do it. That's a pretty common one going all the way back to Adam, right? I'm sure he had all kinds of excuses as he's pleading and it said begging for his life. He probably pulled out all the stops. And in a similar way, unbelievers are going to be filled with all kinds of excuses the day they stand before the king of kings. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, this is Jesus, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There'll be a lot of excuse making, but it's too late. The fate is sealed. Scripture says it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. There's no second chances. So Xerxes, he goes out into the palace gardens to gather his thoughts. And like everything in the palace, the gardens are very extravagant. Um, Back in chapter 1 again, verse 6, it said, The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. This thing was an elaborate garden on the palace property itself. And note the mention of couches all around the garden. We'll come back to that in a minute. Here's a, if I got the slide right, here's a map again of the palace complex, And you can see the outer court and the middle court and the inner court and the throne room that we've already talked about. Well, it's up here in this upper left-hand corner where the palace gardens or royal gardens were. And the exact location of Esther's banquets are not known where it was. We know it was somewhere within the palace, but the, it seems to be adjacent to the Royal Gardens. And so researchers believe that it was right in these chambers here where she held this banquet. And so it would be just down the hall from the throne room in the king's quarters, and it would be in one of the most secure areas of the, of the palace. Remember, there were, when you come in through the king's gate, you go through a huge guard gate, double-door gate, and you go into the outer court and then through another guard complex to the middle court and another guard complex. This thing was like Fort Knox. It was heavily guarded. And so... Probably, they were having this banquet, and Xerxes goes out into the the palace gardens. Now, I don't know why I keep doing this to myself, because it takes way too much time. But I decided to do another satellite overlay. You guys need to pray for me. (laughs) So... Here is a satellite overlay of the palace complex, and it's a little fuzzy, it's hard to get good satellite pictures of Iran, I don't know why, (laughs) but you can see almost perfectly the outline of all of these pieces of the palace that we've been talking about, each of the courts and even the throne room that we've shown close-up pictures of. And so if you take all of that away, you can clearly see still the area of the palace gardens and the area where this banquet was likely held. Wouldn't it, would it be fun to go to that place? I mean, we're going to Israel next year, maybe Iran in 2025. I'd just love to go there and see all this stuff. But okay, one more time. Here's the outline since I spent so much time on this. And, <laughs> and there, you can see it from space. So this is the outline and um, I lost my place. So King Xerxes, he goes out from that place and he goes out to the garden to collect himself because he is rather upset. Now here's a, a view of the actual ruins themselves. You see the parts we've been talking about, the courtyard, the throne room. Uh, And right here is that palace gardens. And then just below it, adjacent to it, is possibly where this banquet was held. So Xerxes travels out into that area. It was an amazing garden. I was going to put up some pictures of other uh, Persian gardens, but I just, I ran out of time. So verse 8 then says, Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Well, Esther, she's... Relaxing on this couch, and these Persian couches wouldn't have been too different from the kind of couches we know today. This is a a stone relief of a Persian couch uh, that was around that same period of time, 400 B.C. And Haman was standing beside her pleading for his life. Now, to Xerxes, who comes in. This was really bad timing for Haman because he falls on the couch, probably as a last ditch effort. And, and Xerxes comes walking in. And to the man who was just forced to rethink everything he thought and knew about Haman and his character, this looks like he is assaulting her. And so he says, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in this house? See, in Xerxes' eyes, there was now nothing beneath this man. And so, he interprets it that way, even though it wasn't accurate. But hearing this, the guards know exactly what to do. Now, historians tell us that there were 10,000 armed soldiers in the Persian army, and They were named by, it was Herodotus that called them the immortals. Because if one of them fell in battle, if he was wounded or killed or if he became sick, another one was immediately put in place. It was almost like nothing had ever happened. They called them the immortals. And we're told that a thousand of these soldiers were handpicked by the king to be the guards. For the king. So this is like the secret service. These guys take their job really seriously. And there were a lot of them. They, they placed a high value on protecting the king. And so it says in verse 8. As soon as the word left the king's mouth. They covered Haman's face. What's going on here? Well it was a custom in Rome and Greece. And almost certainly in Persia as well. That no condemned criminal should be able to look upon somebody at, like the king. Somebody as lofty as the king. And so immediately they covered his face. This was like the verdict. Okay, he he knows, I'm I'm done. He knew it even before then. His fate was sealed. So this is the blow up. Let's look at the breakup. And this will be the breakup of Haman's relationship with the king. The breakup of his position of authority. His life, his entire estate is going to be broken up. And it's even the breakup of all of his dreams and desires. They're going to crumble. He'll lose everything. So in verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. Ooh. Well, when I study a passage of scripture, I love comparing different translations because when there's a difference, it can often point to either an interpretive challenge or some different interpretive positions. Or maybe something that was overlooked by one of the translators. And so what I find fascinating about Harbona's statement in the NIV, it says, a gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. And the ESV says something very similar. But in the King James and New King James, his statement begins with the word, look, exclamation mark. In the Old King James, it's Behold. And what I find fascinating about this. It's the Greek word hene. And it means see. Or behold. Or look. And so I think it's reasonable to assume. That they pointed right to this thing. And said look. A gallows 75 feet high. Has been erected by Haman's house. They could see it. From right there at the palace. Now. Why build it so tall? Well, here's the part that's fascinating to me. I don't know. I kind of get geeky on these things. But the palace complex sits on an enormous embankment that was built up by hand by Darius' father using labor. They built up this 300-acre complex 50 feet tall. So if the gallows, the pole, was 75 feet tall, You could see it from anywhere around the palace complex. Now, remember the plan that Xerxes' wife, or that Haman's wife proposed, was build a 75-foot high pole and have him executed before the second banquet. And she says, then you can go to the dinner and dine with the king and be happy. In other words, he could look out from the palace and see the body of Mordecai hanging on that pole. And that would make this madman happy. Well, let me just illustrate this for a moment. Just a few blocks from the ruins of the citadel in Susa is the traditional tomb of Daniel. Now, we don't know if this was really Daniel's tomb, but as far back as like the 6th century, it was credited as being the tomb of Daniel. And this building has a 65-foot dome that towers over it. It kind of looks like the Matterhorn over Disneyland sticking up there, doesn't it? And let me show you the location on a map. So here I'm going to get a second use out of that satellite picture I did the other week. So here's the city of Susar, some call it Shush Iran. built up all around the ruins of the citadel. And the Tomb of Daniel would be right there. It's just over a quarter mile from the palace complex. Now, what I find fascinating, you ready for this? This is a picture taken from the palace complex itself. And what do you see? But the tower over the tomb of Daniel. That thing is 65 feet tall. This gallows that he has to have erected, 75 feet tall. Why why that height? Again, I think they wanted uh, Haman to be able to look out and see the body of Mordecai hanging on that pole. See how all that kind of makes sense? I love it. When there's some detail in scripture, there's usually some story behind it. So this then... Would make Haman happy. He could sit there dining with the king, looking out at his enemy, Mordecai, who had been executed. Now, I mentioned last time that the word gallows, when you hear that, don't think of like this platform and a crossbeam like hangman and, and they hang him with the rope around the neck and strangulation. It wasn't that at all. It literally means a tree or a pole. Some translations get it right. They say erect a sharpened pole 75 feet tall. So the, the normal form of execution back then was impalement on a great big pole. So that's what this would have been speaking of. And in verse 9, Harbonus says, Look, a gallows 75 feet high stands at Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. And the king said hang him on it. And then verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Think about it for a moment. The robe and the honor that Haman had intended for himself went to Mordecai. And the gallows that Haman had intended for Mordecai was used on Haman. It got completely flipped around, didn't it? Psalm 9, verses 15 and 16 say this. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the works of their hands. Isn't that cool? God's justice. Somebody sets a trap for somebody else, and they're going to end up getting caught in it. That's God's justice. I don't know about you, but I take a great deal of comfort knowing that God is just. That all of this stuff we see going on around us that so frustrates us. I feel like Lot sometimes it says his righteous soul was tormented by the wicked things he saw going on around him there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you look out at San Francisco and Chicago and you're tormented at what goes on. God is Just, We get glimpses of of justice in this life. But there will be complete justice when Christ returns to judge the earth. And we can take comfort in that. So Haman, he loses his life. He loses his position of authority. He loses the relationship with the king. And even more, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, That same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So now she reveals her ethnicity and also her family relationship. Haman's estate was given to Esther. Proverbs 13, says, A sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. How cool is that? It's like poetic justice, isn't it? All that Haman had worked for. All of his great wealth that he was boasting about in the earlier chapters. He didn't get to keep any of it. It didn't even get passed on to his descendants. It went to Esther. And and Haman would, and uh, Mordecai rather, would preside over it. So, verse 2 of chapter 8. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Wow. Remember what we said last time? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? He elevates those who are humble. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, so that God might lift you up. Haman paid the price for his wickedness, didn't he? He was judged by King Xerxes, he was sentenced to death, his estate was taken away. Some people say that capital punishment is paying the ultimate price for a crime. You've heard that? He paid the ultimate price, he gave his life. Now I get their point, but I don't think that's the ultimate price. It is a high price, but the ultimate price will come later. Because Haman is going to stand before another king, right? Right? the king of kings, and all that he's done will be laid bare before that king. And there'll be a far greater judgment. A judgment that separates him from God for all eternity. A judgment that sentences him to hell. That will be the ultimate price. Well, as we wrap up, I've been talking a lot about two kings, two thrones. Esther approached the throne of Xerxes, but before she did, she approached the throne of God. King Xerxes judged Haman, but there'll be a greater judgment from King Jesus. So thinking about all that Haman did, all of his wickedness, it's easy to see it in him, isn't it? It's easy to point a finger. We're like armchair quarterbacks when it comes to sin and that. We can see it in other people. But let's just think about ourselves for just a moment. Every one of us has betrayed a king. Worse than King Xerxes, we've betrayed the king of kings. We've rebelled against the holy God over and over and over again by the sinful choices that we make. Things we think, things we say, things we do. The rebellion against God. We violated his law of righteousness. The Bible says, All have fallen, I've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. We deserve physical, spiritual, eternal death for our rebellion against the King of Kings. And as I said, God is just, He can't just overlook our offense and pretend it never happened. He can't just close his eyes to what we've done. But at the same time, God's full of grace. Think about this. Jesus Christ came down and went up on a wooden pole for us. And he was impaled there. The wrath of God was poured out on him. The wrath that we deserved was poured out on Jesus Christ. He paid the price for our sin with his own precious blood so that those of us who trust in Jesus might receive forgiveness, grace, mercy, a rich inheritance. God treated Jesus like we deserve so that he could treat us like he deserved. Think about 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. How amazing is that? There's another verse I want to highlight as we close. It's a little more sobering. It's Romans 2, 5. And it says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Wow. See, there's some who reject the mercy and the grace of God. They remain stubborn and unrepentant. And the verse says they're storing up wrath against themselves. The wrath of God. See, God is just and someone has to pay the price for every sin. And if they don't turn to Christ, if you don't turn to Christ in repentance and in faith and receive his grace, you'll pay the price for your own sin. One way or another, somebody has to pay the price for sin. So if you haven't done so already, I want to plead with you to admit your sin and cry out to God for forgiveness. Place your faith in the price that Christ paid on the cross, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. And if you do so, you'll receive the free gift of God's forgiveness and eternal life. Let me just read you John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But it goes on, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Somebody has to pay the price. Either we receive that gift from God, a free gift where Christ climbed up that pole and was impaled for our sin, or we pay the price ourselves. It's one or the other. Would you pray with me as we close? (laughs) Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to see the crimes that Haman committed, but as we said, our, our crimes are just as great. They might not be the same crimes, but you say whoever breaks the law, one law has broken them all. We've betrayed you over and over again in the things we've said and done. And God, our sin has created a great debt. And it's a debt we have no capacity to pay. And yet in your infinite grace and in your infinite love, God, you came down and you paid a debt you didn't know, our debt. You paid our debt and you did it out of love for us. So God, as we just reflect on this passage of scripture God just convict our hearts of those areas where we need to confess it to you God I believe there are some here who have never turned to you and confessed their sin and ask, ask for your forgiveness and God they stand condemned before you this morning they're storing up for themselves wrath for that day of judgment and they will stand before you and they will be terrified when the, when the list of offenses has been read and when the verdict comes down. God, I just pray that this morning, if anyone here has not surrendered their life to you, God, that they would do so. That they would enter into relationship with the God of all creation, the most beautiful being that could ever be one who would love so much is to give his own son for us. God, I pray that for those who are in Christ, that you just remind us of the wickedness of our sin, that we wouldn't take that casually, that we wouldn't say, well, because God has forgiven me, this is really no big deal. It is. It's an offense against you, God. So Purify us, sanctify us, cleanse our hearts. God, we want to be more like you. And you've given us that ability by your spirit that you have placed in us. So God, transform us today. We ask this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.